This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Warthog Man Cave preparing today's uh, lesson for my students. Uh, in the Mellon Law Studio, 352-325-3938 on the Mellon Law Hotline or Facebook chat. And uh, production has us out on Spotify, Apple Podcast. Um, there is a new platform out now that we're just playing around with. Uh, it's uh, called Getter, and it's Trump's deal. And uh, it's basically a news source right now. I uh, don't worry, he's going to go with all this. But there are beginning to be alternatives to uh, the censorship of the millennial boys, Zuckerberg and his crowd with YouTube and all. So uh, we'll see how that works out. Uh, we just want to have all our bases covered, and we uh, continue to appreciate our sponsors and our donors who help us uh, keep the message in the bottle floating off the island here. Um, it is uh, titled today uh, something called Brandenburg Concerto, and I'm toying around with the idea of, of d doing this piece, and I'll let you know a little bit later on whether I decide to do it. It was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, and um, I, I think it's well worth uh, putting into the class curriculum today. And it has to do with the violence in all of the, the European wars, uh, which you're seeing uh, uh, constantly now on our uh, systems that communicate instantaneously throughout the world, although they have been taken down in Russia. Uh, morning, Jack, and uh, morning, Ray. So um, I'm a little a bit behind you all as I see you check on. Um, it's um, um, interesting what's going on across the globe right now with Putin, of course, and, uh, and I thought one of the first things we might lead off with, and it kind of took me back to the sports world, which I covered yesterday in Coach Hogg's locker room, but, uh, you know, it's a, it, it, the beat does go on. And I thought you might be interested in knowing that the, uh, um, the uh, governing body of the, called the International Judo Sports Federation, uh, Ginger Adams Otis has uh, noted this and written about it. Um, the uh, International Judo Federation uh, has now uh, posted on its website that uh, Putin, who is a longtime practitioner, and he's a judo aficionado. You know, you may have seen pictures of him bareback on a horse. Ha! Huh? Studly man. Uh, although I understand he's short, but he's broad. And, and um, he's also, uh, you know, likes the judo, which... Um, I was involved with at one time. It basically involves throwing, uh, using another person's aggression against him and his, 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 his momentum to fling him and sling him. And big thing about judo, you have to learn how to fall. So he's a practitioner of this. And um, the IJF uh, has removed him from all positions, stripped him of all his titles and all his jobs, and even uh, stripped a buddy of his, a Russian oligarch, from the same similar kinds of positions. Um, Putin is 69 years old, according to this article. Uh, he was the honorary president 
of the organization. And since he invaded uh, Ukraine on February 20, for the uh, February 27th, uh, and this is what March uh, the 8th, um, uh, then we they've just they've stripped him uh, in light of the ongoing uh, war in Ukraine. So the International Judo Federation has suspended Putin's status as honorary president and ambassador of the International Judo Federation. He is a judo black belt. And uh, he has credited, uh, much as the boxers do, like um, uh, Joe Fraser and these guys, he credited the sport of judo with getting him off Russia's streets as a young man and teaching him discipline. Um, he's even sparred with the Russian judo national team before. And um, he, so he takes the combative life pretty seriously in more ways than one, both personally, professionally, and internationally, I suppose. Uh, but he's not going to be recognized by this international organization. Um, they also, the International Olympic Committee last week has recommended that all Russian and Belarusian athletes be banned from international competition. Now that affects Mendeleev, who is the number one pro tennis player in the world right now. Um, he recently lost in the Dow, but he's right there in a one or two position, jockeying back and forth. And if this is the case, um, we don't know if the World Tennis Federation will organizations also will ban Mendeleev. But um, there's a lot of things that could happen to these pro athletes out of out of these um, Russian countries. So um, it hasn't really yet suspended the athletes themselves. But it's fired a warning shot, if you will. Um, the FIFA Soccer World Governing Body has suspended Russian clubs and the country's national team from all competition. And uh, it's thrown it out of qualification then, uh, effectively thrown it out for qualification on the 2022 World Cup. So um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's, some, there's some things that are going on here that are uh, not particularly pleasant for anybody who is associated with Putin, which is unfortunate because uh, I was very much against Jimmy Carter uh, suspending, the, and I think it was 1980, um, the athletes from going to the Olympics then uh, because, you know, the training is so arduous and the opportunities are so rare to, uh, to be involved in that kind of sporting competition. And then to have the president for political reasons um, take the team off the uh, out of the competition is really tough on the athletes who did really nothing but train hard. So it's a tough call. Now, um, it, it led me to look at some more things that are going on in athletics because it is, uh, it's a, a kind of interesting here where uh, we're going as a continuation yesterday with these outlandish salaries. I, I reported yesterday on, on the uh, boar ball and, uh, having this uh, guy who I think is a $245 million contract, something to that effect, uh, you know, running the, uh, the union uh, position here to try to get guys more money. And uh, you, you think, well, yeah, you know, golly, I mean, what's this about? I mean, come on, how much money is enough? I mean, all you're doing is throwing a ball 60 feet, six inches, and you're getting $240 million of, of, you know, come on, what's going on? But as it is, you know, a sucker's born every minute, if you want to go to the tube and buy the products that put the uh, money in the pockets of the players, it's not really necessarily the uh, butts in the seats because these games have a lot of empty seats. 
uh, it's the TV money, I suppose. Uh, but now it's trickled down to the announcers, and we got a couple, three guys who are getting ready to uh, join a million dollar a game announcer club. It's, it, you know, it kind of dazzles. It kind of dazzles you, doesn't it? I mean, your teachers are struggling. Students can't read and write. Uh, and yet we got these guys with this gift of gab. I don't know why I'm not making a million a year um, with Coach Hogg's locker room. You've got uh, the, the biggins right now that they're talking about are Aikman and Romo. They're going to be a million-dollar a game announcer. Uh, Tony Romo started, I suppose, with $17 million a year to uh, be in the booth next to Jim Nance. Um, and now uh, they're talking, and Jason Gay has been writing about this, and I picked up on this and thought it was interesting. Um, the, that's a million bucks per regular season game. Now let's do our math here. Um, uh, that's a quarter of a million dollars, a, a, a quarter so these announcers will get a quarter of a million dollars a quarter to announce a game. And, uh, and, and Jason Gray writes that if an NFL game is truly 11 minutes of action, uh, that's close to $100,000 per minute of actual football to be an announcer. Um, you know, come on. I mean, what is going on? Um, nobody's questioning Aikman's professionalism. He's very good. Um, Romo is a little too emotional for me, although he has, you know, a knowledge of the game. He's able to read the defenses and talk about them. Um, but, uh, you know, you've got, you've got these guys really over the top. And, and we've been talking about name, image, and likeness. This is going all the way down to the high school athletes now. So, um, this is, um, this is also about football because football is in its own financial, what Jason Gray calls its own financial stratosphere. It's the most essential entertainment obsession in the nation, okay? In the nation, okay? It blows away ball, basketball, or hockey. You could combine all of those three and they wouldn't even approach football. And I know why. It's because there are no collisions. Well, hockey has collisions, but it has a very small arena that can be played in. I mean, my golly, they're as uh, they're violent as anybody else. And referees, last time I saw, let them beat on each other until they got it out of their system. But the real collisions of where we try to take your brain out of your helmet or we try to cripple you for life are still on the football field. And we can go back to antiquity and see what a huge draw that is. So these network contracts have soared into billions and they're giving these former NFL quarterbacks like Aikman and Romo, they're getting paid like they're still playing the game. So, um, it, you know, now we've got getting into this thing. Where do you think all the money is? Well, it's with Amazon. Why? Because we go order stuff off of Amazon outside my, my uh, farm here up and down the road all day long into the recesses of rural, what's left of rural America where I am in the piney woods of north central Florida in the Warthog Command Center here. Um, we, we have Amazon Prime trucks running all up and down the highway. So Amazon's going to get into this. Uh, they're going to court Al Michaels, that we understand. Uh, he's kind of a legend uh, with Sunday Night Football. Um, he is, um, uh, Apple is considering and, you know, there you go again. Everybody's got an Apple phone, so they got all the money. So you got Amazon and Apple. Now what are they going to get into? 
they're going to get into buying um, the rights to all these uh, football teams and pr primarily the football. And, and uh, it's going to be a river of cash that flows into this stuff. And it's going to trickle down into the salaries. Um, I guess I can see why the union representative for Borball is over there crying out, we want a piece of the action too. Uh, but it just doesn't have the draw that the violence of football has. And the violence of football, as Jason Gray points out, is so great. Even without announcers, if you put the Cowboys and the Packers into prime time in football, you're going to have a hit, even if you don't have any announcers, because those two uh, uh, people clobber each other back into antiquity, and there's a crowd fan base for each one of them. So um, now we've got Curb, Kirk Herbstreet, who's a college announcer. He's going to join the Amazon team. And um, where does it all end? Well, I can tell you that it made me think of a, a young lady who used to dance right in front of me when I had seats behind um, uh, the uh, uh, basket in uh, the, the, the old basketball uh, coliseum. And uh, it was um, the dazzler, Erin Andrews. She used to dance. I was three rows back and she was right in front of me. And she was a dazzle then. But now she's become a real dazzle and she's going to get in on this stuff. Uh, I thought this was interesting. Um, she is 43 years old now. Man, how time flies. She still looks like she did when she was dancing with the dazzlers uh, uh, in front of me, three rows down from the basketball end zone. She's been a mainstay on the Fox sideline. Uh, she's been very shrewd about building rapport over these top football player, primarily quarterbacks. And so she's got a, uh, a, a nice resume and is well regarded by the players. So and she's worked, um, uh, work, built her career working with Curb Herbstreet. So now uh, Amazon is eyeing her and uh, she may also get in on this uh, huge uh, salary uh, stuff that's going on with these play by play people. And she only appears, my golly, if you give her. Um, um, play, cut her salary into pieces based upon how long she's on the camera, I think she gets 60 seconds or so on the sideline, maybe two or three times a game. So um, all this is being moved around right now. Um, the money is flying. And as I said, it's trickled all the way down. The philosophy, the, the financial attitude, if you will, has trickled all the way down to uh, what we have with the uh, uh, name, image, and likeness. That's if you, when you hear NIL, uh, that's what you're going to be hearing is name, image, and likeness. Uh, locally, I got to report just quickly here on our good instigator, investigator. He has uh, been recognized uh, by the big time. Uh, let me just find the mark here. Uh, he had, yeah, he's made the big time. Um, WFTV, for example, has covered this. Um, he has, uh, let me just pull up the article here. It's pretty interesting. We've been working on this a long time. As I say, we am involved with giving him uh, access to all the uh, classroom activity we have here. But uh, Christopher Heath of WFTV wrote just a few days ago that now the uh, Lake County State Attorney for the Fifth Judicial Circuit, we're in the Eighth Judicial Circuit, is looking into cases of convicted sex offenders voting. And I can't use a beep word because the algorithms 
Well, if I say voter beep, you know what I'm talking about. The algorithms, when they hear that F word, censor me. Uh, so um, th these cases are looking into voter beep uh, from the 2020 election. Uh, and the court system is now involved. It's taken a long, long time. And it's not appeared here first. Remember now, remember we discovered it here first. But listen, it ain't appeared here, has it? In the Gainesville sunset, we've pushed it here on the Ward Scott files, but it has appeared in other districts, other judicial districts. And it does quote our instigator, investigator in here. Um, uh, and so the Florida Department of State, uh, which oversees the Florida Division of Elections, uh, is now looking into these cases. And plus, we know that the, the election uh, commission that DeSantis has put together is now formed. And so we're going to get uh, uh, these issues looked at perhaps a little more closely and take it out of the hands of these politicalized state attorneys who seem to uh, decide to sw bring SWAT teams in on commercial uh, uh, real estate guys, but not to uh, pursue. Uh, you remember this state attorney would not touch the things we found. He kicked it over to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. He didn't want to touch it. Uh, the jury's out on him, as you can imagine. So um, that, that's where we are right now uh, with uh, 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 the voter beep. And believe me, somebody asked me the other day if I believed there was voter beep. And I said, it'll take 10 years or so uh, for uh, 20 years, maybe for historians to actually expose it and write about it uh, because there's so much uh, unpopular um, the narrative now that will not allow. I mean, it's like Russia. Uh, it, you know, don't think of it. Just think of it that way. It's contrary to the uh, political narrative by the people in power, including the the media outlets. So uh, they they censor you and they shut you down. They don't let you uh, even suggest to your audiences or listeners that there's such a thing as voter beep. And so. Uh, uh, there you are. It's not. It's not any different from what's going on in uh, in, in Moscow. I would say right now, um, the the uh, 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 maybe you know it will come. We know what's going on. We got other supervisors throughout the state who are um, you know have been alerted to what they have let slip past their noses, uh, and you know these supervisors are paying huge, are paid lots of money. They're paid six figures. Okay. Uh, why do we have to find this for them? We're paid nothing. Uh, our donors keep us going. Uh, that, that keeps us uh, able to do these searches and pay these fees to get this information. Um, but, you know, we're working against uh, people who have six-figure salaries and are sitting on their hands and don't do anything and don't care to do anything because it's not comfortable or because they're elected or whatever reasons. It's really quite an eye-opener for you to be in the cockpit that I'm in and see all these things um, flying by your, by your windshield. Because um, you, you like to think that, you know, all this stuff that you grew up maybe believing that the scales of justice are blind. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, you, got, you think that, you got another thing coming. Uh, there is not even close to representative of the way justice works. Justice in this country is so politicized it's amazing that the word is even applied anymore. So uh, be that as it may, we don't, I'm not speaking to, as my grandmother said, to hear my head rattle. 
I'm speaking from experience, from things that we've bumped into that, have, you know, really hasn't shocked us because we're not naive, but, but it has been uh, unfortunate that it's so prevalent. The indifference, the, the ineptitude, and sometimes it's just downright sloth, laziness, um, com comfort in the position, uh, untouchable, all kinds of words come to mind. Um, and, and it just uh, becomes a kind of a routine of mediocrity. And, um, and, and nobody is going to nudge it into any level of excellence without great effort and great funds and, and great intelligence and perseverance. It's just not going to happen. Um, I want to talk a little bit about something I'm thinking about doing in a minute. Um, I have not done it on this show, but I can tell you right now, it was one of the most popular things that I ever did as a classroom instructor. And uh, you, may, you may realize, and this may hearken you back to your childhood, um, when you were a little kid, if you were fortunate, and this is one of the problems that we have with uh, some of these people who are entering the world of letters and the world of numbers and try to get by and, and, and uh, understand how these systems work. Uh, I was very fortunate as a little, little kid to be read aloud to by my mother. And initially it was nursery rhymes, high diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle, the cow jumped over the moon. Little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating a curds and whey. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. None of the king's men and none of the king's horses could put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I knew, I knew scores of these nursery rhymes. My mother would read them to me and I would memorize them and I would say them and it brought me greatest joy. And after that, I began to hear stories read to me and I just sat there captivated. I'm not talking about, well, there was an oral tradition in the countryside, of course. We communicated by oral tradition. We talked in stories. We, our way of communicating, we didn't necessarily have to know even the meaning of the story. That wasn't, we weren't trying to find meaning we weren't trying to preach an ideology. We weren't trying to win a point, an argument. We were trying to tell a story and, and amuse ourselves and perhaps entertain ourselves. And that was great sources of joy. Uh, I can remember uh, one of the things that uh, always stuck in my mind was party line phones. And I used to think, boy, there goes my aunt to the phone. The phone was on the wall and the receiver part uh, uh, that you talked into you could pick up on it and, and put it to your ear, but you had to put your hand over the mouthpiece or they could hear you. And there are several people on the party line and there'd be one long and two shorts or, you know, two longs and one short or whatever. You know whose code that was. And I've seen my aunt many a time hear a code ring that was not hers and uh, go to a country woman big. Uh, you know, this is before. Uh, we, we, we had, we, I remember being bathed in a sink with a pump handle. We didn't have a faucet. We had a well. We, wind power, we had, it was all, it was all a, a, a you know, a, a windmill. Um, and, and, and her go to the phone, put her hand over the part you speak into and listen. And even then as a little kid, I thought, oh boy, that's morally reprehensible. And I realized later, no, it was the way in which country people looked after each other. Uh, they knew what was going on through their, with their neighbor. If there was any peril, uh, they heard it. Uh, uh, otherwise, they kept their mouth shut and just listened. And it went on across all across the party line. And it was all stories. 
And uh, later on, I was telling James Dickey this, sharing this conversation with James Dickey, who was a poet laureate, laureate of the nation. Uh, as you know, you probably know him because he wrote the book Deliverance and the screenplay and was actually in the movie. Uh, a great friend of mine. I'm in his biography books. Um, I'm quoted quite extensively. Um, and I was telling uh, Jim Dickey about uh, my in-laws listing their neighbors on the party line. And he turned to me and he said, Ward, have you ever heard voices on the phone? And back then, this was before cell phones. Uh, it was not unusual sometimes to hear another conversation on a phone. And so I said, Jim, sure I have. And he said to me, well, you think those are the voices of live people, don't you? Ooh, ooh, Jim Dickey, how your mind works. Well, how do we know? How do we know? I mean, come on. If you take a look at this room that you're sitting in now, there is communication flying around through your head, above your head, below your head, around billions of voices going on right now in the, in the same atmosphere you're sitting in and I'm sitting in. You just can't hear them. And you think they're all the voices of live people, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. The imagination is a wonderful thing. So I've been thinking about how best to share with you some of the most moving things I know about what's going on in Ukraine. And I asked my production guys if they thought I could get away with it. And they said, sure, let's try it. So uh, we're going to take a break in a minute. And I'm going to share with you a story uh, written that was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, this gentleman, let's put his picture up on the screen, Camry Production. Uh, and many people in my area here knew this gentleman. Uh, I'll see it pop up here in a minute, and I'll know that you're looking at what I'm talking about. Um, uh, there it is. That is Giannis Chomain. He wrote under the nom de plume Lawrence Dorr, and he is a Hungarian, uh, a handsome fellow, intelligent fellow. He was an artist in Hungary. His father was a member of parliament, uh, and uh, they, they lived there on the Danube, and, and then long broke, became World War II. And his family was completely broken up and killed off by that war. Um, he was in, conscripted by whatever conquering army came through. He fought with the Germans, then he fought with the Russians, then he was abandoned by both as a Hungarian and viewed as an outcast and, and a threat. Um, he, he eventually escaped from Budapest, Hungary. Uh, he was born in 2014. Uh, he escaped from Soviet occupation. Uh, he began to live an itinerant life, almost like a gypsy, as he wandered around post-war Europe. And then he tried to emigrate to the United Kingdom. Uh, and finally, he got to the United States. And uh, he had been a writer in Hungary, a writing in Hungarian. And he came here and he wrote in English. I was just amazed at the linguistic facility uh, with different languages these people have. He knew Russian, he knew German, he knew uh, English, he knew you had to almost know all these languages in order to survive in Europe. And he came here and I met him. Uh, and I was just a young whippersnapper, as they say, very much interested in everything I could learn from the best people I could learn it from. And we became friends. And this is circa 62, 63, along in there. And I began to learn 
a great deal about writing from him. And uh, this uh, piece that I want to share with you after our break is uh, one of the finest things I've ever heard, unfortunately, about some of the ugliest and worst things I've ever heard. And it is a testimony to, behind, to something I've come to understand, and that is uh, art does not get born in happy places. It only gets born in miserable places. And I want you to think about that paradox. The misery of the situation creates the greatest art because the human being is so, so down and, and so, so gloomy and that the, the human being has to find beauty in it some way, somehow. And, and that creates art. The great uh, so-called Negro spirituals were born out of the cotton field slavery. You understand what we're saying? The misery uh, gives elevation to the singing gives a way to compensate to the to the toughness of the of the task. And I've heard those songs. I was fortunate enough, if you will, to have been a young guy in and around Pearl River and Bogalusa, Louisiana, and heard those wonderful voices. Uh, now, of course, it's all politicized now and fractured into anger. And at that time, it was just beauty. Singing the gospel back and forth made the day go easier. Hey, art can make it go easier, even in the toughest of times. I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to try this experiment with you. And you can tell me if you enjoyed it. Be right back in just a second on the Ward Scott Files. This is Ward Scott. And I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are On the Spot Dry Cleaners, Okita America Martial Arts, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. If your brains were lard, you couldn't grease a small frying pan. <laughs> to call you stupid would be an insult to stupid people. Achtung, Achtung, the papers are not in order. Step out of the line and report to the inspection station. We are going to search your belongings. Much schnell. At Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. All right, welcome back to the Ward Scott Files. If you're just tuning in, I'm going to um, treat you to a Pulitzer Prize winning nominated story. Uh, about Eastern Europe war. It's a classroom activity that was immensely popular uh, as I was a professor. 
I don't know how it's going to go over with you, uh, but if you have to get up and you can't hear it all, you can certainly hear it on wordscottfiles.com or Spotify or Apple Podcasts uh, later on today. It's called Brandenburg Concerto. It was written by my great friend and teacher, uh, mentor, uh, person who is now passed, who was a Hungarian. Uh, and I think the story will explain itself. It's called Brandenburg Concerto. He sat on a boxcar's floor with his legs outstretched, leaning against the wall, wrapped in one of the Brandenburg concertos, feeling content. The music was alive and intimate, and nothing else existed beyond it. It had been very difficult for him to start it playing in his head. But once he could remember the sound of the Hungarian violin, piccolo tuned, the rest came easily. By the time the concerto reached the first minuet, he swayed with the music, the back of his head rolling from left to right, right to left on the side of the boxcar. Even the crack around the sliding door turned white as if the music had become visible, bringing in light. Lieutenant, the girl, an ancient 23-year-old bone collection with short, comical dead hair, called to him. How far are we from Budapest? I don't know, he said, angry at her for shutting off the music. Now he had to limp with the rhythm of the boxcar and remember that just an hour ago when the train had stopped, this same skin and bone creature had been raped by three Russian soldiers. They had pushed the sliding door back and climbed in flashing around with a battery light. One of them kicked him aside and then raped the girl. It would have been very simple had they not kept the light on the girl's face. Her eyes had been like glass eyes, not frightened, or accusing, or anything, just dead. I don't know, he said again, feeling guilty for his anger. I really don't know. I believe you, Lieutenant, she said. Call me Peter. Thank you. What is your name? Sarah. I am back from Auschwitz. Auschwitz? didn't mean anything to him, a town in Germany or Austria. Do you like Bach? There was no answer, so he repeated the question. Do you like Bach? Yes, she said in a small voice. Are you crying? No, she said. He reached out for her hand, a little rough, narrow hand. You are crying now, he said moving closer to her. I am lousy. Who isn't? He put his arm around her bony shoulders and eased her head onto his chest. She didn't weigh more than a rabbit. My mother used to enjoy just reading the score. I like Bach, she said, wonder in her voice. The snoring of the sergeant at the other end of the boxcar stopped with a moan. Peter could hear the music again. The limping rhythm changed 
to a pleasant swaying. Can you hear it too, he asked. Then his heart jumped. But it was all right. She wasn't dead. She was just sleeping. Peter kept on swaying. Then he too dropped off. The noise of the sliding door being pushed back woke him. The sergeant was looking at him apologetically. I'm thinking of getting off, sir. It's not healthy for us around stations. I'm in no shape to do any jumping, sergeant, but you go ahead. Sir? Yes. Just wanted to say, sir, that I am pleased to have served under you. He delivered his speech standing at attention. Peter squirmed a little. The girl was pressing on his leg. You were like an uncle to me, Sergeant, he said, hoping he gave something to. Do you have your crutch handy, sir? Yes. Don't worry about me, Sergeant. They won't take a man who can't even walk properly. You'll be all right, sir, after a while, but I don't like to leave you. All right, Sergeant, jump. God be with you, sir. God be with you. Peter saw him drop from the open door. The limping rhythm was the same again, then changed to the minute thunder of a bowling alley as a train crossed another track, then again the limping. The variety of sounds made the train seem to go faster. The girl woke up. We are almost at home, Peter said. I recognize the rubbish dumps. They are still here. What will happen to you when we arrive, the girl asked, her eyes on Peter's right leg. I don't know. What's the matter with your leg? It's my thigh. The fragment or whatever it is, is pressing on the bone. It doesn't hurt if I don't step on it. You'll have to go to a hospital. I was a medical student before they took us away. Then you must be older than I am. The girl ignored this. Didn't you have doctors in the army? The doctors had no time to really fix it, Peter said. We were pressed very hard. I was left behind to take care of myself. He looked toward the open door and added, the sergeant decided to stay with me. He must have loved you. Who? Your sergeant. He had enough of war. Maybe if you stay with me, the girl said, I am Jewish and the Russians fought the Nazis. Stay with you? You'll be safe. Safe? Yes. But she began to cry. I'm a little bit crazy. Everything will be all right when the war ends, Peter said. Where are your mother and father? They are dead. Have you got anybody? My mother and sister, I think. We live on the Buddha side. You can stay with us. Me? Yes. You're like Bach. They both laughed. You are good, the girl said. I never thought. Thought what? I never thought that I'd ever want to speak to you. Speak to me? If you had been herded, like, like, I was at the front. I wasn't doing it. My family didn't approve. But you knew at least some of it, and you were not one of us when 
That's true. I like you anyway. You are a good Christian. I'm not even a good Jew, the girl said. I don't believe in a God who can let things like this happen. Can you? With loud clanking, the cars bounced against the cars bounced against each other like billiard balls. Then, after a final convulsion, the train stopped. The girl was at the door looking out. Then the next minute, the air was rent by the firing of automatic weapons. Peter, lying on his side, heard the girl shout. What is it? Then voices answering back. Now there was firing all around them. The girl was kneeling beside him, trying to get up. But he wouldn't move, not as long as he heard the Tommy guns rattling. The end of the war, the girl shouted. He stood up, leaning on his crutch. The sound of killing miraculously transformed in his ears into the happy sound of a St. Stephen's Day fireworks. He hobbled to the door to shout with the others, milling around the bent tracks, burned out railroad cars, and the patched up skeleton of the station. People on their way home, Polish and Ukrainian girls who had grown into womanhood in labor camps, Jews, the skin and bone remnants of Auschwitz and Belzen, Hungarian men and women dislodged by war, and soldiers, victors and vanquished. They all shouted and cried and kissed each other. Peter, standing in the doorway of the boxcar looking at them, felt love rising in him for all the people, his brothers and sisters, spared by the mercy of God so that they could all live in peace. The mementos of the war was still there, but he had already stepped over the threshold where war, hate, and fear were left behind like bad dreams in the morning. I am hungry, Sarah said. The firing of, taper, of Tommy guns tapered off. So am I, Peter said. Let's go home. She helped him down and they joined a throng of people scurrying about like rats or sitting on their bundles with infinite patience waiting for a train or the news of one that would take them home. A woman stepped in front of Peter carrying a small photograph like a sick bird in the palm of her left hand. Have you seen him? He is my son. No, but don't worry. The war's over now. The woman left without a word, her eyes already scanning the crowd for returned soldiers. Can you walk on, Sarah asked. Peter was watching the woman stop another soldier. The soldier shook his head. Of course I can, Peter said. They walked across what had been the platform. I feel dizzy, the girl said, walking slowly beside him. We'll eat soon. It's the sun on an empty stomach. Water would help. You know, when one drinks very slowly pretending. Yes, Peter said, seeing for the first time the armed Russian soldiers around the station. They were not waiting for a train to take them home. The war is over, he murmured. What? The war is over, he said, watching the blue visor caps of the NKVD and the torn uniforms of the Hungarian soldiers herded in one corner of the station. Peter, the girl said, Peter. I see them, he said. Stoy, the command came. Halt. 
We're almost home, Peter said, going on. Then he stopped. He heard the click of a rifle bolt. Two Russian soldiers in clean, neat uniforms, holding their rifles under their arms like hunters, converged on them. The smaller one grabbed Sarah by her arm and pointing with his head outside the station said, Dave, Dave. The girl just stood there looking up at Peter. Dave, Dave. He wants you to go home, Peter said. I have no place to go, she said. Then when the other soldier stamped the ground with his feet, she began to run. She ran like a stray dog with her head turned back every third or fourth step to look at Peter. Once she stopped altogether, but the soldier again stamped the ground and she went on running, her ankles buckling under her as she stepped on pieces of brick and cement. Finally, she was out of sight, lost among the rubble. The soldiers laughed and good-naturedly nudged Peter to join the prisoners in one corner of the railway station. There were 25 of them from all branches of the Hungarian army, a dirty, dejected lot, some of them without shoes, sitting or standing in little groups. As Peter hobbled closer to them, a horse-faced artilleryman jumped up from the ground where he was sitting and rushed at him. This is an officer, he screamed, take him, I am a proletarian. I want to go home. He spat at Peter. See him standing here high and mighty? I am a proletarian, I tell you. Two men pulled him away and sat him down on the ground again. An NKVD officer walked up to Peter now. Do you speak German, he asked, addressing him in German. Yes, I do. Where did you learn to speak German? As a child, I had a German nanny. The NKVD officer was now standing almost nose to nose with Peter. You are lying. I am not lying. So, you're not lying. It was a German nanny who told you to pretend that you were wounded? Peter didn't answer. Drop your crutch. The crutch fell with a clutter on the pockmarked asphalt platform. Walk. I can't walk. Where are you wounded? Here. Peter pointed at his right thigh where his riding breeches were slit to allow for the thick, dirty bandages. We'll see, the NKVD officer said and gave an order in Russian. Two of his soldiers came to stand on each side of Peter. Walk. I can't without the crutch. No. He shouted something in Russian. Peter heard a horrible animal-like sound. Then his head hit the platform. He didn't feel pain. He knew only that some warm liquid was slowly coursing down into his boot and remembered his father telling him that a gentleman always tries to avoid creating a scene and opened his eyes. It was his blood. He felt a sense of relief. Then his thigh started to throb with agonizing, tearing pain. Somebody gently kicked his good leg. 
a Russian soldier was bending over him. Dave, he said. Peter was pulled up and the crutch thrust into his right armpit. Standing once more, he saw the NKVD officer unconcernedly smoking a cigarette and the prisoners huddled together like cattle in the wind. He wondered if he should not walk up to the NKVD officer and do something that would build up the men's morale. But a new dizziness made him forget the men and his duty. All he knew was that the crazy angle of the sky was threatening him somehow, and that pain which had been contained in the sector of his right thigh burst through and took over the whole of his body. Dave, the Russian soldier said kindly, his outstretched arm pointing the direction. Peter went slowly, trying to keep the sky, now blindingly white and dotted with sharp black dots, from turning over and pushing him down into the blackness of the ground. Concentrating hard, he hobbled on, one-two, one-two, his left boot kicking away broken bits of brick, one-two, his crutch riding a monotonous Morse code, one-two. He passed the line of armed Russian soldiers ringing the railway station and was among mountains of brick, splintered wood, and chunks of mortar. Crushed houses, which had become hills with ridges and valleys and slopes. Houses turned into burial vaults, smelling of the sweet smell of death. The footpath opened into the street where houses stood, some listing, some shored up but standing. He hobbled on a sidewalk, noticing empty glassless shop windows where women and a few old men sat two or three to a shop window, selling their wares. They looked at him with frightened eyes in silence. One, two, one, two. There were other pedestrians on the sidewalk, not running or crouching in doorways, but walking. He had come home. One, two. Good, fresh, hard roll, somebody called out. Peter stopped, dragging his crutch upright. The woman was sitting in the shop window next to a laundry basket full of hard rolls. Hard rolls used to be served for breakfast on white plates, sliced in two, ready for butter and jam. I didn't mean to, he croaked. It's all right, the woman said. Peter jammed the hard roll in his mouth and went on. One, two, one, two. The shop windows and the people in them were weaving from side to side. Tick-tock, tick-tock. There was a grandfather clock in the dining room. The pendulum swung between two ivory columns. One, two, tick-tock. He felt the dizziness coming again. Where was he? Where was home? In this disfigured, bashed-in, strange city. It used to be a long way from the railway station. Suitcases cramping his legs as the cab drove past three bridges then turned left by the monastery with its many sweet bells and crept up a steep hill to a quiet tree-lined street. There were no taxi cabs, not even streetcars. One, two, one, two. A building was missing here, then shop windows again and people in them. Tick-tock, tick-tock. An old man wanted to give him a cigarette, but Peter couldn't stop now. The house was far away and the sun got brighter and brighter. 
The black dots were coming back, making his heart race madly. One, two, one, two. He was standing in front of a shop window, seeing the glinting jagged edge of glass in the black burn frame. The dusty wooden floor was partly covered with a sheet of brown paper. A woman was sitting on it with a basket on her lap. There were cornmeal cookies in her basket. Bright yellow, he could see that clearly. The woman was wearing a calico girdle as if dressed for a costume ball. There was something wrong with her. They were looking at each other. Her eyes were brown and shaped like his own and she was crying, sitting there with the basket on her lap. Then she lifted her arms. I won't be able to get up, mother, Peter said, sitting on the brown paper beside her, not hearing her say, my son, and explaining that she had been waiting here every day for the past three months, knowing that he must come this way because she had prayed. He couldn't hear anything. His ears were filled with the noise of eating the bright yellow cookies. I thought I'd read that into the record today. Hope you enjoyed it. <clears throat> that was by Giannis Shomain, who wrote under the name of Lawrence Dorr. And the reason he wrote under the name Lawrence Dorr is he was afraid that the Russians would come to the United States and kill him if they knew him uh, writing under his own name, they would trace him down and find him and kill him. Um, I remember him telling the story of saying goodbye to his mother for the last time. His mother did live. The Russians killed all the rest of his family, um, but they spared his mother. But they were going to kill him. But the Hungarian underground came to him and said, we can get you out of here. We've arranged for you to see your mother for the last time. You may ever see her, but neither of you can recognize each other because you're being watched that closely and they uh, will put two and two together and kill both of you. So you just passed. He was in some sort of disguise, but their eyes, as he references here, are, are uh, Slavic eyes, high cheekbones, uh, and so they have a similar type you see it in uh, that same structure in uh, Donald Trump's wife, um, the high cheekbones. Um, and so uh, the mother got off the trolley car as, and approached him and he approached her, but they did not look at each other. They just passed each other. And that was the last time that he saw his mother. He, uh, if you can say he actually saw her. So he came uh, through a network uh, of um, displaced people, much like those you're seeing displaced now, and finally worked his way uh, to the United Kingdom. And um, when he came here to write, he uh, first went to the University of Virginia to see William Faulkner, who was lecturing, was a writer in residence at the uh, uh, University of Virginia. And, uh, William Faulkner, when uh, Giannis would enter the room, 
uh, William Faulkner would stand and bow. Um, it was the uh, recognition of the tremendous hardship that created the uh, beautiful art. So uh, Faulkner, of course, wrote about the tremendous chaos of the South after the war. And uh, of course, here in Brandenburg Concerto, uh, Lawrence Dorr, the pen name, Giannis Chomain, the man, uh, is writing about the tremendous chaos uh, just of coming home. And uh, when I first read that story, uh, I you know, used to talk to him at length about it, uh, how it was put together. The, the really tremendous thing about it is the, the writing of the one-two TikTok. That allows, and the, and, the, and the way the sky is angled gives you the, uh, renders for you the, the uh, uh, medical uh, situation, the medical crisis that uh, the, uh, the narrator is in as he tries to go home and survives being kicked and knocked down by the Russian soldiers. And the paradoxes in here are not lost on people who understand human nature. The Russian soldiers initially think he's lying, knock him down, kick him, run the girl off, but then tell him very kindly and very politely, you know, you may go your way now. Uh, that, that is really, in an essence, in, 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 a, in, a, in a specific action, uh, the problem we have is people. Uh, capable of enormous, enormous kindness and simultaneously capable of enormous, enormous cruelty. Um, and it seems to be arbitrarily dished out depending upon circumstances. Um, so that's really my gift to you as my students. Um, uh, you may take this and uh, do what you with with it. Uh, if you didn't hear it all, we'll be out on uh, wardscottfiles.com and out on Spotify and out on Apple Podcasts. Um, and uh, it, it, to me, it's, it, it's better than all the things I have here um, that are the analysis of the war. Here's a, a piece called Two Blunders That Caused the Ukraine War. Uh, here's one which uh, uh, I'm very much uh, interested in. It's uh, Onslaught Revives Memories of World War II. That's basically why I thought, well, I could read the article, uh, Memories of World War II, or I could actually read the story. And so I elected to do, of course, uh, the latter. So have a great day. Thank you, production, for helping out on this. Um, and um, and uh, we'll be, tomorrow we're going to have um, Kat Kamek with us and um, um, 9 and 9.30. Tune in for that. That's going to be very interesting, hopefully. Have a great day on the Warthog Command Center out.